Amen. Well, I do want to uh, thank Carolyn and uh, Charles for really helping us get a deeper appreciation and understanding of the kind of love that God has demonstrated for us in every aspect of the worship service today. I appreciate the songs, the focus. Uh, one of the things that Charles stood out really to me was the reference that he made about hell. You know, when obviously mortality is not something we think a whole lot about. I don't know about you, hell's not really uh, something that I'm constantly thinking about, not necessarily much of a motivator, but when I look at what Jesus has done for me in the here and now, my life, my marriage, the relationship with my kids, all the various challenges that can come our way, that encourages me and enables me to love God back. And I think this is the thing I appreciate about this series that we've been going through here the last few weeks. Uh, Brian started us out with more than this. Surprised he didn't break out in one of those uh, 80s songs to kind of help that out. What was that, Ultravox? Or, uh, where's Brian at? Yeah, one of those. But anyway, then we had um, Mark Steberg with uh, just all the different life issues we have, talking about calming the storm. You know, before we go any further today, though, I'd like to get a couple things off my chest, if that's okay. Before, as, I, as I trip and face plan, I guess I better stay on the carpet. Is this the, is this the safety zone? Is this how this works? <laughs> they should have asked me to sit on my hands. I'd have some serious issues being Italian, man. I wouldn't be able to talk. But, you know, there's, there's just a couple things that, that kind of tick me off. But the thing that ticks me off the most is anybody that messes with my kids or my dogs. I, I, did, I did get the order on that, right, Shailene? You know, I, we, I talked about this a little bit with our uh, singles at our midweek. And I uh, didn't want to walk through it a little bit here because uh, we're going to go after, talked about the temple model on Wednesday. And we're going to... I'm going to explain what that is as we get into the sermon here this morning. But I, I look back at my kids growing up, and there were definitely a couple things that stood out to me. One was when, uh, I think it was Shailene, was it Neil Armstrong, what was it, elementary school or junior high? But there was a, a young man who had this propensity for flipping up her skirt at school. And uh, as a dad, we got any dads in the audience? <laughs> to say that I was mildly aggravated was probably a little bit of an understatement. And I'm not going to get into a whole lot of details because I was a Christian at the time and I may have stepped over the line there a little bit. But let's say we just had a coming to Jesus talk and the young man didn't bother anymore. Then we had another situation. Uh, there's been a few of them with Stephen through the years, but uh, he was getting picked on. He was in this little league. And uh, I think many of you know Jim Hill, the uh, sportscaster. This was Jim's brother who was coaching the team at the time. Well, Stephen was being bullied by his son, which I didn't know that Adam was this gentleman's son. So I decided to go down and have a chat with Dad, see if Dad could kind of rein him on in. And uh, I introduced myself. He stands up. Now, I've, got, I've been told I've got pretty big hands. Just say mine disappeared in his when he went to shake mine. And I, I was a little concerned about what the final outcome would be, and it didn't go all that well on the front side, but we came to an understanding he had a chat with his son, and everything was back to normal. But, you know, thinking about this, kids, it's, I just don't even get it sometimes. Some of the biggest attitudes, some of the worst attitudes I had were with 12- and 13-year-olds. <laughs> uh, you know, as a parent, again, for those of you that are parents, I think you can get this. You know, you have your kids, and they have their friends, and they play one thing to their face, and then it's a whole other thing to their back, which this... this uh, 
Well, here's, here's what we're going after today. Our revolutionary loves are serious. How loving God and each other will change the world. This next slide kind of gives you an idea as to how I feel about some of these 12 and 13-year-olds. You know, they're all cutesy on the surface, and then, and then they, go, they go chupacabra on you. But I do want to establish this. When it comes to my kids, there's actually no point in trying to make peace with me or be nice with me. There's no means of compensating me if you've messed with my kids or my dogs. The best thing you can do for me has nothing to do with me. The most honoring thing you can do to honor me is to respect and love my kids. You know, this is what I love about some of the individuals that have had influence in their lives through the years. I think of my son, Stephen. He had a learning disability growing up, and there was Mr. Valone, his fifth grade teacher, who got where Stephen was coming from, really got in there, inspired him, and helped Stephen really start to enjoy school and schoolwork. Uh, P.J. Miller was his RSP uh, counselor in high school, and she did a phenomenal job. She loved our son. So I, I felt very loved through that. You know, those of you in this fellowship, uh, some, of the, some of you that have uh, really become great friends with Shailene, you know, Karina, Elaine, there's a number of you that come to mind, Mary Atkins, individuals that, that just are there relationally. And that's the way to really honor me and get me fired up about things. If you love my kids, you love me. Okay, feel better. Off the tirade. Let's go ahead and move on here. Going to be dealing with a little bit of uh, history this morning, history on religion. And ultimately, how where you worship can affect your conduct. You know, Christianity today has had a lot of influence through the years. And I think as Christians, sometimes because of tradition or our upbringing or different denominations we've been a part of, there's this propensity to feel guilty about things. Things we should do and don't. Things we do but shouldn't. And ultimately, these things have been shaped by and formed by a variety of things that have taken place in our past. But the thing that I want to contrast today that I think will be really helpful when it comes to understanding love and a right relationship with God will come from a contrast of the temple model versus the Jesus model. Now, the temple model is an ancient model that, that goes way back. I mean, you see it with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Persians, the Jews, and in some of our early denominational churches. And today we can still be influenced by that temple model. Temple models made up of sacred places where, you know, you have to wear certain garb in some instances, prayer covering, shoes on your feet, and within those sacred places are sacred texts. Maybe a papyrus, maybe any number of things. I know some of you went Friday to go see the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I had the opportunity to, to take a look at those when I was over in Israel. And there's an incredible website that you can actually read through the Dead Sea Scroll. You scroll through right to left, and it gives you the English, Greek, whatever the translation is you're looking for right underneath it. But so we have these texts which there are sacred men that interpret them for us. You know, they, they tell us what it says and how we need to conduct ourselves. And generally speaking, in each of those situations, you've got sincere followers. But this is where it can get a little bit, of, get a little bit sketchy. You know, around the 4th century, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. It was made, went from being an illegal religion to an accepted legal religion that Constantine put into effect. And we see this shift where there's a, this major development away from the purest form of Je the Jesus model, and that kind of, basically the walk that Jesus walked, which was easy for people to 
pursue and go after and imitate to, again, this temple model. And what we see taking place here is that the place of worship became more important than the product or the outcome of worship. We see the place actually replacing that true religion. Constantine, he appointed his mother, Helena, and she was given uh, what's called, uh, let's see, where's the term here? Well, basically, yes, there it is. It's uh, Augustus Imperatrix, which gave her access to Basically, the war chest that Constantine had, her role was to go out and find all these sacred artifacts and build sacred sites over these artifacts. These are a couple of them. St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, you look at these places. They're amazing. Thousands of years ago, a couple thousand years ago, these things were built. And the amount of money, the gold, ivory, marble, they're just amazing. And this took place all throughout Europe. So we see this proliferation of the temple model kicking in rather than the purest model that Jesus started. And this is where it can go. I, I've always wanted to see my name on the end of the quote, so I figured I'd throw one in there this morning. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure someone's going to pull me aside and talk about there being some pride issues or something this morning, but I wrote this down and I really felt good about it. But it says, the place of worship replaced both the significance of the worshipers and the love that we were called to for one another. The church, this, the body of believers, was replaced with the church, the love of the building. Steve Marici, thank you. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if that's the response I was going to get, but I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, I'm just glad you guys didn't boo it. So anyway. But, you know, with that, we, we have this, this situation with these creeds. The Jesus model was revolutionary. He ushered in this new covenant, new command, new ethic, new movement, new integrity. And it was incredible, the impact that it had. And this is what I love about the church. It's about people. And I think the thing that we're challenged with today is there's this propensity to try and slip back, back into that temple mode again, that temple form of worship. And that holds us back. That, that keeps us from being effective. If it's just about, you know, what we do on a Sunday from time to time. You know, here's some examples I want to talk about for a little bit this morning. When it comes to this temple model. If you feel guiltier about missing church than you do about mistreating someone at work or at school, you've got the disease of the temple model. If being somewhat spiritual or sacred is more important to you than how you treat someone, it's the temple model. I remember years ago, I was about seven, eight years old. It was just after uh, having my, my first communion. And, uh, you know, the church we were in, they, they, it was full. They used part of the athletic field as overflow parking. And we're on our way out of the parking lot. My dad, maybe not always necessarily the most perceptive guy in the world, but you know, we're, everybody's kind of dodging through these volleyball poles in the middle of the concrete, and my dad inadvertently cut someone off. And, you know, rather than, you know, uh, just a nice little exchange, oh, you know, I'm sorry, oh, yes, you know, go, go ahead. You know, the guy starts leaning on his horn, flips my dad off. I mean, this is within minutes of walking out of church. That's the temple model. That is the temple model. See, if you contemplate how close you can go to sinning, Without sinning, you know, just kind of push that envelope. Because maybe you're afraid of what that's going to do or how that might have upset God. That's the temple model. 
you know, what do, I need to, what do I need to do? What exactly do I need to do to make things and keep things right between me and God? But without really going any further, without there really being any investment relationally. See, and this is the thing as a church, we've got to be careful that we don't slip into. We need to go beyond what is in it for me and how to keep God happy with me because Jesus teaches his New Testament followers, the New Testament teachers taught, once you place your faith in Christ, God is okay with you, and you're okay with God. If you're trying to spend the rest of your Christianity making God notice you or feel good about you and get, in, get by with the least amount of commitment possible, that's the temple model. We've got to get beyond that. We need to understand the love God has for us and the grace that's been extended to us through Christ rather than thinking through, okay, what's the loophole here? How can I, how, what's the shortcut I can take? Uh, there's got to be a clause in this somewhere that I can figure out so I can go as far as I can without losing God's blessing. You know, and these are some of the things that turned me off as a, as a young teen about religion. You know, and just thinking back, in my early 20s, I was agnostic. I remember being invited to church on multiple occasions and thinking, based on the language of the individuals that invited me, or the conduct of the individuals that invited me, thinking, okay, you call yourself a, tri a Christian, I treat people way better than you do. And there's no confusion about what I am. I, I'm agnostic. I don't believe in God. Yet you claim this. You claim you love Jesus. And I treat people better than you treat people. I remember one evening going to a, a late night service, and the young lady that I went with invited me back to her home afterwards. That's the temple model. Just because we sprinkle a little bit of, a little bit of temple into our Christianity cup, guys, we need to understand this doesn't make it right. It's a, su a subtle form of Really, uh, a very, very, very self-centered religion. See, the Jesus model, as we look at this here, the temple model is you-centered. What must I do to make things right and keep things right between me and God? The Jesus model is centered on the you beside you. You're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Okay, well, if you're a Democrat, it's focused on the you next to you. And that you've got to be okay with that individual. It's about loving one another. It's about being engaged with one another. If you're, say, a Republican, centered on you, to the left of you is the individual that you need to be focused on. It's not about you. This is the thing that's so amazing about Jesus. It wasn't about Jesus. If you're a racist, it's centered on the you that you don't want to have anything to do with. Following Jesus is a calling to leave what is all about you and focused on what is next to you. This is what I love about some of the things that Jesus established for us. Again, the Jesus model is centered on the you beside you. But as we move forward, Jesus really nails this for us in John 13, 34, 35. Most of us know this by heart. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? So men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's huge. But it plays into virtually everything Jesus taught. If we go forward... Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, loving the you that's next to you. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know what I love about this? Paul was a Pharisee. What was Paul set up? What was his training to do to defend? The law. He was a lawyer. It was about knowing every single aspect of all the rules and regulations and all the commands that had ever been established, and he was the defender of that. 
He was the one that would call people to that commitment. He would hold the people accountable to whether or not they were upholding the law. Yet Paul says, in Galatians 5, verse 14, after Saul made the transition to Paul, became a true Christian, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is a complete departure from temple thinking. I mean, this, this kind of blows my mind. Out of all 634 commandments and regulations that the religious leaders like Paul came up with and held people accountable to, he states right here, love your neighbor as yourself. That upholds all of them. The thing I love about that is that makes my life a whole lot simpler. <laughs> Complete departure from temple thinking. This is revolutionary. This is revolutionary love. But, you know, for a minute here, let's take a look at some uh, thou shalls. Thou shalt tell the truth. Well, why should we tell the truth? Well, because God says so. And that's a response. You're wrong, even though you're right. Because temple thinking says you need to tell the truth because that's what the text says. And this is what I love about Jesus. The Jesus model says revolutionary love says you should tell the truth because when you don't tell the truth, you hurt the person that you lie to, which ultimately hurts you, your relationship with them, your relationship with God, and it just, it just extrapolates on out from there as to the damaging impact. We saw it in the garden with Adam and Eve. See, when you lie, you're covering yourself at the expense of someone else. When you lie, you're saying to you, to, or actually to the person that you're lying to, you're not worthy of the truth. You know, it's kind of like that Tom Cruise movie. You know, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth! Really? See, the reason Christians shouldn't lie isn't because it says so in the book. The reason the Bible says we shouldn't lie is because God is much more concerned about the people we will be tempted to lie to. And the hurt that comes through that. See, the temple model says, I'll tell the truth so God will love me. Jesus says... The reason you'll tell the truth is because you love people the way Jesus loved people, compelled by Christ's love. Thou shalt be generous. Why should we be generous? Why should we give our offering? Well, I know if I give God a buck, I'm going to get ten back, right? You know, if I, I do that, God's going to bless me. Well, I hate to tell you, you live here in the United States, let's just, let's just be real. You already got your ten bucks, okay? You don't need to give the one to get the ten. You already got the ten. It's way more simple than that. Why are we supposed to be generous as Christians? I'm going to go real slow here. The reason that we need to be generous as Christians is because it helps the people or the cause you're generous to. I mean, it's real complicated, right? Why are we supposed to be generous? Because it helps the people or the cause that you're generous to. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus just keeps it simple. Now, do you know why we shouldn't talk badly about someone? Well, yeah, of course, Steve. I mean, the Bible talks about anger and malice and gossip and all these different things. I mean, the Bible says shouldn't, so he shouldn't. Shouldn't gossip because the Bible says so and God doesn't like it. No, that's temple thinking. Shouldn't gossip because it hurts someone. It undermines that individual's integrity before other people. And the reason we shouldn't gossip is because you elevate yourself at the expense of someone else. 
can't love yourself as your neighbor if you lie, gossip, or are stingy. And young man, I got something for you here. You know, I, I'm gonna, I, actually, this covers the women too, but I want to camp on the young men for a minute. Do you know why you shouldn't pressure your girlfriend sexually? And for the women, your boyfriend sexually. I mean, it, you know, it goes on today, so let's just be real. Well, easy, see, because it says we shouldn't be involved with sex outside of marriage, right? You know, if you do bad things morally, there's going to be bad consequences that come your way, and blah, 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 blah. I think this is where, when it even comes to something as simple as dating, it shouldn't be about you. It should be about encouraging the you next to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, the reason you shouldn't pressure someone into doing something that they don't want to do is when you pressure them into doing something they don't want to do, guess what that creates in them? It creates a regret. Jesus' followers do not create regrets for other people. When someone tells the story of their greatest regret, I guarantee you, they're not thinking about the fact that you pressured them into that regret. When they're involved with counseling and they're dealing with the loss of a child due to abortion or adoption, or having to give that child up, maybe giving up a career, maybe giving up school so they can take care of that child, they're not thinking about you. The regrets they have are founded in the loss of that child or the loss of that opportunity to maybe finish school. So you're not part of that story when they finally meet that person they want to spend the rest of their life with and they want to get married and they know it's moving in that direction and they start thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I say if they ask me how many partners I've been involved with? What my sexual experiences were like before I got married, before this? They're not thinking about you. See, in that moment when you're thinking about pressuring someone sexually, as a true Christian, this is what you're going to realize. If I'm trying to impose my will on someone else, I don't need a verse for that. That's not loving myself as my neighbor. It's loving myself at the expense of my neighbor. And in all these situations, it is the exact opposite how Christians are called to live their lives. Do you know why we shouldn't engage sexually outside of marriage? Primary reason is has a very good chance of carrying over memories or issues that are going to create challenges in when you finally make that decision to get married to someone, when you decide that it's going to be exclusive. Because all that involvement beforehand in teens, you need to listen up here today. It's not all that. It will diminish what God has promised you, how awesome marriage is supposed to be, how awesome sex is supposed to be. It will diminish that because of that lack of love for that individual that you're involved with. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands on this. Any of you have a regret that you've experienced because someone has pressured you to do something you didn't want to do. Let's take a look around. This is what a lack of loving your neighbor, this is the impact that has. And I guarantee you, these regrets go the gamut. We have the highest suicide rate in generations in our youth today. Why? Stuff like this. Here's a good one, Steve. I think I got you on this one. What if it's consensual? Okay, so 
Any of you got nephews, nieces, little brothers, sisters, somebody a lot younger than you, relative? If little Johnny, your nephew, comes to you and says, you know what, Uncle Steve? I talked with my cousin, and I'm going to grab a butter knife, and we've decided we're going to gouge each other's eyes out. But, you know, it's consensual. Seriously, guys, do we need a Bible verse to sit down and help them out with the fact that, you know, it's probably not the best thing to do. And, you know, this is how we are with God. Well, God, you didn't say anything in the Bible about that. Or, God, you weren't very specific on this particular situation. Or, God, you know, Jesus says one thing. Paul says something else. So, I, bang it. I'm just not even going to worry about it. This is what I love about God. This is what I love about Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that all-encompassing? Do you need a specific verse when it comes to how we should conduct ourselves in any situation? God didn't give us verses for everything. And this, the, the, the New Testament imperatives are examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving others. And God gives us that example through Christ. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, I think through the Bible, I look at that, I don't know, is that a little overwhelming? All those books, all those verses, all that stuff. For those of you that like Breaking Bad, I figured I'd give you a periodic table for the, you chemists in the, in the bunch. So, uh, isn't that a little bit more complicated? So what I love about the Jesus model, it's a lot less complicated. But I think the thing we've got to understand with that is even though it is a lot less complicated, it's far more demanding. Let me repeat that. The Jesus model is less complicated, but it's far more demanding. Let's be honest. Is it easy to love other people? Some people maybe. Everybody. I just got to be real. No. That's a reality. But I, wanna, I want you to never forget what I'm going to be talking about here next. At the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man that those we're closest to believed was the Son of God. At the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man that those that knew him best believe he came from God. At the epicenter of the Christian faith was a man who died covered with his own blood and the spit of other men. The Jesus model is far less complicated, but so much more demanding. You know, so many ways we can be looking for those outs. We can want to go hide in the temple. We want to find the loophole. We want to find the workaround. You know, hey, Steve, I don't know that's what the Bible says. That's the Old Testament, you know, this blah, blah, blah. We can make excuses, but excuses don't work. Thank God Jesus didn't make excuses. Because of his willingness to love God, we have the opportunity to have that same relationship with God today. You know, temple religion, it's easy to find that loophole. Temple religion, Christian or other ways, maybe even more so with Christianity today, it is easy to find the workaround. And this is the problem with the world today, honestly. Temple Christianity is such a turnoff. People are one way on Sunday, and then totally different the rest of the week. You know, I was reading, uh, I'd read a book on the life of Gandhi. Most of you are familiar with this quote. 
As most of you know, Gandhi was dark. Church in India, the Brits had brought in, wanted to attend church, heard about this Jesus. You know what happened to him? He was turned away at the door because of the color of his skin. I'm sure this was a catalyst for the quote. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Senior so relationships with one another. Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, have the same mindset or the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Luke 6, 27 says, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Luke 6, 36 reads, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And this is the thing that makes the Christian faith, if it's not the temple model, but the Jesus model, this is the thing that makes the Christian faith so incredibly spectacular. Because in following Jesus, there is no place to hide. There are no workarounds. There's no shortcuts. If we're really honest with ourselves for just a moment, in almost every situation we've ever been involved with, Christian or not, intuitively, we know the answer to the question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? See, love offers no place to hide. What does love require of you at your home, at your work, on the little league field, in traffic, in line at the grocery store? We almost always know the answer to that question. You can hide in the temple, but you know the answer to the question. What does love require of me? And this is the essence of following Jesus. What's necessary? What's necessary to follow Christ? You know, some of you may be thinking today, well, you know, Steve, this, you're kind of watering this down a little bit. You're basically tossing all the scriptures, all the books of the Bible, all the different things you talked about today. You know, what is this, man? Some kind of a Woodstock, Lollapalooza, Love Fest, you know, all a bunch of hippies here. Just, you know, just, come on, man, just love each other. I think the thing that we need to understand is Thinking through how God answered that question. What does love require of me? So when our Father in Heaven answered that question, it cost him his son. When our Savior Jesus Christ answered that question, it cost him his life. And then the thing so blow away is, what was the calling from Christ? Even when he, after he had resurrected and came back, guys were kind of, you know, wobbly in their faith. It was the same as it was at the beginning of his ministry. Follow me. Imitate me. And this is the part that's really simple. You simply need to answer the question, what does love require of me? Everything else is commentary. Everything else is illustration. Everything else is simply an excuse after you answer the question, what does love require of me? You know, can you imagine what would happen to our families if we answer that question with the conduct that was befitting of Jesus Christ, can you imagine what they would look like, everything that happens in our life, if we ran every situation through this filter of what does love require of me? Can you imagine what our neighborhoods would look like, our cities, our country? What it would look like if everything was run through that filter? What if? All Christians worldwide for just one month paused and took everything they did during the course of the day 
and ran it through that filter. What does love require of me? You know, the first century church, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had were oral scraps that were handed down. And this fascinates me about the impact that they had. <laughs> there was no structure. There was no Bible. After Stephen was stoned to death, they didn't have a plan. They went home. But they took what they had learned with Christ, from Christ, with them. And we see the, the known world being evangelized for Jesus. Imagine a world that was critical of us and what we believed, but was envious of us because of how we treated one another and the people outside our circle of believers. And that's why Christianity survived. You look back at the Roman government, there were various Roman emperors that couldn't understand why this Christianity thing took. Why you had wealthy people hanging out with slaves, you had kids being pulled in off the street, you had people that weren't even a part of the church, that were being fed, that were being taken care of. And the Roman emperors were, were afraid of the influence of these people that were a part of the way. And what was the answer? It was because of their love. You know, they tried imitating it with the whole bread and circuses and all these other things that they did. None of it worked. Where's the Roman Empire today? Aside from a handful of Italians, what do we got? <laughs> Matthew 25, verse 31. We're going to take a look at this verse by verse here. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of glory. You know, we talk about this, the glory of God. The glory of God. And this is what we see right here, the significance of what Jesus did. Being glorified. It says, All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You know what? I don't have sheep or goats, and I don't totally get the, the, uh, the agrarian uh, aspect of this right here. But there is going to be a day of calling. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And I, I do get light and darkness. I do get love and hate. And it goes on. It says, And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I'm sure these people are thinking, Jesus, when do we give Jesus something to eat? I, I don't, this is the first time I've ever seen Jesus. When do we give Jesus anything to eat? I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. Jesus can get sick? I was in prison. You visited me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? See, the essence about following Jesus isn't about you. Verse 39 encapsulates it. When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? But the bottom line is he goes on Anyone that has done anything for any of my children has done it for me. See, the Jesus model centers on the you beside you. Your devotion to God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for others. Period. 
You know, earlier did I mention that the best way to honor me has nothing to do with me? Did I mention that whatever you do for one of my children is like doing it for me? No point talking to me, trying to make peace with me, compensating me, if you mess with my kids. The best thing you can do for me has nothing to do with me. If you love my kids, you love me. It's that simple. This is exactly what God's established through what we've looked at today. Whatever you do for one of these, it's if you're doing it for me. That's God talking there. Whatever you do for one of these, you do for me. See, the good news that we celebrate this morning is that Jesus gives us the power we need to go through and get through this life without making the excuses, finding the shortcuts, the workarounds, whatever it is, if we choose the life that's linked to his revolutionary love. See, we need to be willing to take a close look at those red letters that we've been talking about, which are G is Jesus speaking that we see in the Bible. We need to be willing to take his words at face value. You can live by Jesus' revolutionary love. And again, to help you answer that question, ask yourself what more, one more time here, which kind of life is better? What does love require of me? It's not easy, won't solve all of your problems, but life linked to love is a thousand times better than life wasted looking for loopholes and hiding in temples. Every morning, get up and ask yourself, very simply, what does love require of me? See, what would it be like if I treated anybody I come into contact with the way that I would like my kids to be treated? The way I would like to be treated? You know, if you're here this morning, you're visiting with us, maybe not ready to sign up for the challenge, I want to encourage you to at least think about this aspect of things, to pause for just a moment in those key situations and ask, what would it look like if I loved them the way Jesus loved me? You know, if you just came for our Women's Day, you're our very valued, valued friends and guests. We're great that you're grateful that you're here with us this morning. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's the tenth time. Yeah, maybe you need some help in the workplace, with your family, your marriage, your kids. Just even getting this whole God thing. Well, what I want to encourage you to do is to join us in our small groups. We can help you use that filter that we're talking about here today. And what does love require of me? That filter will change everything in your life for the better. I'd like to go ahead and close this out with a prayer here this morning. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Father, I'm so incredibly grateful for the example that you've given us through Jesus Christ. And even being able to, to pause and apply this to myself, thinking through this as I prepared this lesson. What does love require of me? Father, thank you that at the point in time we were still sinners, as Charles talked about this morning. God, you, you didn't see us for where we were at, at, at our worst. You saw us for who we could be your son Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that you were so willing to give so we'd have the opportunity to have that life with you. Please give us the grace as we go through this week and the love, the way Jesus loved, being able to look to his example and give us the courage to live for a new life. Give us the ability to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Help us to grow in living a life that is linked to love. Father, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for when that question was asked, you were willing to answer with the life of your son. We're grateful when Jesus was asked that question, 
he was willing to answer with his own life and give that so freely so that we could have a, a life of love, a life of purpose, a life with you now and for eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.